I want to take you back. This is this is weird because I know that we're talking about the end of the semester. So last Tuesday night of the semester, you're in finals next week, and I know you're super excited about that. And um, at least Allie was. Um, but uh, anyway, I want to take you back for a second um, to the very beginning of the semester. The very beginning of the semester. Um, and uh, does anybody know what I wore on the very first Tuesday night of the house, of the, of the semester? I know nobody, nobody remembers, like, because you all were checking girls and guys out. But I actually wore this. This was it's the Ethiopian soccer jersey. My wife and I had just brought our twins home from, from Ethiopia, and, and um, um, I haven't worn it uh, since. And I, I wore it kind of, for those of you that remember my fashion, which is like nobody, but um, maybe my wife. Um, to, to help us remember the beginning of the semester. You may not know this, some of you do, that, that almost all the campus ministries uh, every fall help with move-in day. Um, how many of you moved in for the very first time on the UTC's campus this past August? Yes. All right. So these four guys right here. Well, I want you to think whether you're a freshman or not, okay? I want you to think back to move-in day here at UTC, and all of the emotions that went into that. I don't know if your parents came and dropped you off, other family members or friends. I want you to, to, to picture move-in day. One of the great things that all the ministries do here is they help you know, the freshmen move into the dorms on, on move-in day, and I know upperclassmen don't really get that treatment for some reason because you all get to move in two days later, but all the ministries kind of welcome the freshmen in, and I, we've been doing this for several years, and I just want to tell you what, it, what it's like for people on the outside to watch students move in with their parents. Um, it's, and, and, and to meet, more importantly, their roommates for the first time. I mean, we get to kind of look in on that as campus ministers. I and mean, can you remember that moment? Can you remember that moment? Like, even if you're not with that roommate any longer, can you remember that moment when you first walked in and like maybe you communicated via Facebook or email or something like that or maybe even texted each other. Uh, But remember that moment for a second. I can still remember meeting my uh, college roommate, a guy who uh, ended up being in my wedding, and, and uh, I did his wedding, and uh, he's six foot five, about 160 pounds, <laughs> and uh, he played in our, uh, for our basketball team at this little college in California, and I remember just kind of walking in and going, dude, you're tall. You know, like that was my first impression of him, and really skinny too. Um, and uh, so, but picture for a second that moment when you were moving in. You know, girls, I'll just have to say this, girls often react a little bit differently. There's a lot of like, you know, clapping and jumping up and down and there's, there's kind of like, uh, you, you know, like that is so cool. Like as they start unpacking their stuff, my favorite color, pink too, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and like there's a, there's a like, no, you take the bigger room. No, no, you know, all that kind of stuff. Guys, totally different. It's usually pretty quiet. There's a lot of this. Hey, what's up? You know, and, and, and everybody's checking them out. Like, and, and, and whether you're a girl or a guy, I know that one of the questions you're probably is running through your mind is, are, you know, about this other person. You never vocalize it, but this is your question. Are you going to be cool? Are you cool? Because I'm cool. And I sure hope you're cool. But there's, in that moment of meeting on move-in day, you're figuring all that stuff out. 
And I don't know if you stayed with that roommate in, the, in all the years of college or not, or if you ditched him after one semester or even less, but a lot goes in to that move-in day. And it's funny also to watch the parents' reactions, because parents are, are, doing, are checking out the roommate too, by the way. They're giving them kind of the up and down once over, and they're checking out the parents and what kind of TV's coming in, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's a fascinating thing for us to watch every single year as people move in. Well, tonight we're going to talk about a different kind of move-in day. And, but I want you to have that image in your head. Because those first impressions and that meeting someone for the first time is a powerful, powerful thing. And if you've been here this semester, you know we've been doing this series on the Ten Commandments. And we uh, took a break kind of last week because you all took off early for Thanksgiving anyway. So we did a special night of worship over the hub, and it was phenomenal. And, and, um, but, but we took a break from the series. And, and if you were here a couple weeks ago, we finished up the, the actual Ten Commandments where the last commandment is don't covet. Don't lust after things. Don't, don't uh, desire things that don't belong to you. So... I wanted to read to you, though, what happens right after the issuing of that last, sorry, Zach, um, after that last commandment. Um, let's have that removed. Um, anyway, um, and so we're going to look at Exodus 20, verse 18. And if you remember, Moses went up on a mountain to receive these words, these 10 words from the Lord. And came down, but, but the people witnessed the voice of the Lord in a very powerful way. And I want us to look at what, how the people react to this. this is, I think this is a, a fascinating reaction that happens right after the Ten Commandments. And it says, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, that's probably the NIV up there. Isn't that a fascinating reaction? I mean, we can kind of understand it, and, and, you know, in our modern mindset, I think that we go, oh, those primitive Israelites, they didn't know about thunder and all that kind of stuff, and we go, oh, they were scared by thunder and lightning and smoke, but, but think, think for a moment, if this, this, this God that had just delivered you from 400 years of slavery and provided for you, and now was was if you remember one of the things that we've talked about all semester is that God issues these commandments out of relationship. He said, remember, I'm the one that delivered you from the house of slavery in the land of Egypt. Remember that I'm that God, okay? So, so that's who I am. I'm the one who loves you and cares for you. Now, here is how we are to live. But it's interesting that the people have somehow forgotten already by verse 18, and all they focus on is this thunder and the lightning and stuff, and they say to Moses, hey, it'll be all right if you talk to us, but we don't want God to talk to us. It'll be all right for you to talk to us, but we don't want God to talk to us. And I kind of parked on that, for that thought for a while. This 
fact that, that when we are confronted by the reality of God, how often do we react like those people at the foot of the mountain? How often are we willing to substitute something or someone else instead of hearing from God? And not to get all like, I don't know, culturally critical or anything like that, but think for a moment even how churches and ministries like this are set up. Um, I know because, and this might sound arrogant to some of you that don't know me, but I know that, that uh, some of you have told me that you like me speaking here. You've told me that. And I'm flattered by that. I really am. But how many of us have substituted someone like me or a pastor or a podcast or something like that into actually, instead of actually listening to the voice of God? Now, I'm not saying that, that God couldn't use what I say every week, hopefully, to speak to you. But how often have we substituted someone or something else? I know that this is true in my life. I mean, um, I had this little thing on my, my phone. It's a podcast catcher. And there's seven different sermons that I download on a weekly basis from it. Now, that might sound to some of you like, oh, gosh, that's a lot. But I'm, I'm telling you this not to like impress you with the number of people that I listen to, but to confess to you that there are times in my life when I find myself searching from podcast to podcast to podcast going, God, are you talking in any of this stuff? And sometimes I think the answer is, David, turn off the podcast for a second and listen to me. But we live in this culture where we have substituted a lot of things for actually, I don't think any of us really might know how to listen to God, how to, what his voice might even sound like. And so in some ways, we can be like those Israelites at the foot of the mountain that say, hey, Moses, we'll let you talk to us. We like you. <laughs> but we don't want God to talk to us because we're scared of him. And it's funny, there's two things that I think that, that come from this. It's ironic how quickly the people of God forgot the character of God. Just 10 commandments before this, he says, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Remember the slavery? I brought you out of that. But they are so frightened that they don't want anything really to do with God by the end of the 10 commandments. They've forgotten the character of God. Of God, And I think that we can do the same thing. One of the, the things that I think that we forget as a culture is how to remember. We don't go back into the past and remember the ways that God has worked in our lives. And instead, it's kind of like, God, what have you done for me lately? And we forget the character and the trustworthiness of God very quickly. And I think the other thing that's, that's interesting about that verse is how quickly they were ready to substitute Moses for him. How quickly we as a people, remember when it, you know, the early commandments, don't make an, a carved image. And we kind of went, oh, that's so weird that they did that. They made little idols and stuff and worshiped it. But in some ways, we do the same thing. We want as a people something tangible, right? It's hard 
if we can be honest, it's hard to worship a God who is largely unseen. It's hard. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And instead of looking for little idols, speakers, pastors, um, podcasts, what would it look like if we began to be a people that honestly sought God for who he was and didn't settle all the time for the messengers instead? You know what's interesting about all this? God isn't like unaware of this, okay? We believe that he's all-knowing. And God's response to this I think it reveals even more about his character. Immediately after the issuing the Ten Commandments, God starts to give commandments about building an altar. And after the building of the altar, he commands the building of a tent. The biblical word is tabernacle. And that tent is called the tent of meeting. God's answer to the people's reluctance to be with him is to create a place to meet with him. A tent of meeting. It's a telling, telling phrase. God longs to be with us and in our midst. His plan that begins to unfold in the midst of his people is that, okay, I know you would rather hear Moses than any other speaker than me. But my answer to that is I'm coming into your neighborhood. I'm coming into the midst of your community, and I'm planting myself in this place. God moves in. And that says something about his character. And so whatever place you are in your life, when you feel that God is distant or God is silent or, or God, can I trust you? Trust this, that the message of the Bible is that, that when, when God's people begin to be afraid or confused or, or scared, terrified, God moves in. God moves in. Let me, let me give you two examples, I think. Remember the Garden of Eden? When Adam and Eve do the one thing that God tells them not to do, right? To eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they go and they hide. God has all the options at his disposal. He could have spoken from heaven in a thundering and loud voice going, Adam, Eve, why did you disobey? Does he do that? No. The Bible says he comes walking into the garden, asking Adam and Eve where they are. You see, in the garden, God moved back in, seeking out his people in relationship. Another example is one that we just sang about. We may not know that, that in the, in the, between the time of the Old Testament ending and the birth of Jesus Christ was the span of about 400 years. The Jews called it the, the period of silence, where God seemed to be silent. And people were wondering what had happened to God. And the answer was that God 
moved in to our world. Christ the Savior was born. You see, this is a consistent thing that God does in your life and in mine, that God will move in when we think that he might be so far away. I want to just take a little rabbit trail. I don't know how many of you do this, but sometimes I think I think like this. I hear these stories in the Bible, and then I go, you know, that's great for those people in those times, that they got to experience God that way, that, that, you know, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. That was cool. And, and And the shepherds and the angels and everybody that got to witness Jesus' birth, that was great for them. But what about me? We don't get to experience God that way, right? Or do we? How many of us read the Bible and we, we kind of go, oh, that was another world, that was another time, it was like some movie. It wasn't really true. It was kind of this fictional little story made to make people feel better. But what if we've missed that? What if we, that, that's the furthest thing from the truth. That all throughout the Bible are these stories of ordinary people like you and me that got to experience the presence of God in ways that, that we might not get to. Because maybe, maybe we've settled for a substitute like Moses. What if it's true that, that all these stories that are found throughout Scripture are examples meant to point to us to say, don't you want him? Don't you want him? And instead of accepting that invitation, we are content to settle for lame substitutes again and again and again because it's safer. We're scared. What might it look like? Is God going to send us to Africa or whatever? How many of us have settled for a voice that is not really God's. I want to take us on kind of a brief survey of three other mountains in Scripture where all of the elements that we read here in Exodus were present. And I did this because as I was studying this passage, I realized that the biblical writers went back to the foot of Mount Sinai where these Ten Commandments were issued again and again and again as an example to all of the different contexts that they were writing in to help people remember and help us all to realize that this is a consistent problem that we have with God. Then when faced with the presence of a holy God, we often will settle for a substitute instead. So, The first one we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And this is in the Gospels, obviously. And Jesus, it says, after six days that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then listen to this. 
Same images from the book of Exodus. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And listen to the reaction. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But then I want you to look at what happens next. Something has changed in God's in, in God revealing his character in the incarnation of Jesus. Because Jesus came and touched them. Don't fly by that verse. The God of the universe in flesh on this earth, when he saw his people scared, came and touched them. And he said, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. You see, God knows God knows that that we can be scared of him and what he sounds like. And that's the answer of of Jesus coming to this earth. All those images, you know, for for someone that was uh, was well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, when, when they read that story right there, they would go, this sounds like another mountain with a cloud in a voice, but the story ends up different. Jesus comes, touches them, and says, don't be afraid. And if we know how the rest of the gospel plays out, we know that that same one who reached down and touched his terrified disciples is the same one who would die on a cross for them and three days later be risen again to conquer death. So that's the first mountain. The second mountain is from the book of Hebrews. This one takes a little bit more, um, I guess, teaching through because of the language that's there. So I'm going to go with this one a little bit slower. Can we put up Hebrews 12? Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling a group of people who were scared they lived in a time when, it, when, when they were persecuted, when they were um, ch- challenged is too uh, weak of a word, when they were dying for their faith. And so the book of Hebrews was meant to be a book of encouragement. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews goes back again to the mountain where the people were scared. And he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and is burning with fire. This is the Mount Sinai to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words, listen to this, this is exactly what Exodus was saying, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. The writer of Hebrews is going back to the mount, a foot of Mount Sinai where the people heard this word and were terrified because they could not bear what was commanded. If, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. Can we go on to the next thing? Um, Let me go back to that. There was a holiness to God. There is a holiness to God. Where God was setting up a boundary for his people. But I don't believe that as as the story of Scripture unfolds, that we were always meant to live in abject fear of him. The message of the incarnation, God putting on flesh, says otherwise. So 
In fact, Hebrews bears this out here in this chapter, and it says, The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But the next word is, but. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now listen to this picture. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Another way of saying that this is a huge party. I I was listening (laughs) to a podcast today while I was riding my bike in the ark, and one guy said that, that, you know, out of the whole world, followers of Jesus Christ should throw the best parties. And yet we're not known for that. Well, side note. (laughs) But this picture, I think, paints this idea that, that when people are actually in the presence of God, thousands upon thousands of angels are in joyful assembly. And then to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is a painting of the picture of what is to come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel back in the book of Genesis, the first murder that happened. And the biblical writer of Hebrews there says that that Jesus' blood accomplishes something. It's a better sacrifice than the blood that was spilled from Abel Abel's death did nothing for us, but Jesus' death did everything for us. In essence, what those verses are saying is that because of Jesus, we move from a mountain of fear to a mountain of joy. Because he has offered himself as that sacrifice of a new covenant, a new promise, The mountain of Mount Zion is a place of joy. It's an assembly of people that are throwing the greatest party ever thrown. There's one other mountain. In Revelation 21, and this is the essence of God moving in, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. This is John saying these words. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem was up on a hill, on a mountain, and coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You know, it's interesting. Those last few verses about the no more pain, no more crying, no more tears. No more death. We like that part, don't we? We can put our hands around that. But we often, I know I do this, that I don't know what to do with the verses before that where it says that God will be in their midst, will dwell in their midst. 
he will be with them. We can get our minds around this idea that maybe when God comes to restore all things, pain and sickness and cancer and death and suffering and abuse will be no more. We can get our minds around that. But how many of us like the idea of God dwelling in the midst of our city? Can we even get our minds around that? I don't think that many of us can. I know that it's a hard thing for me to imagine. But all throughout these pages, there's this brief survey of these three different mountains in, in the New Testament. And looking back to Exodus, I, I can't walk away from this, this idea that too often in our lives, we have substituted something else for God and been content with that. And I need to ask you, how many of you have done that in your life? How many of you a long time ago prayed the prayer at camp, at church, around your family dinner table or at the bedside and thought that that was it and you were done? And then from that point on, you have surrounded yourself with good things. You've surrounded yourself in, with fellowships. Preachers, teachers, podcasts, Bible studies, mission trips. Can I say something that might, you know, I know that a few weeks ago I talked about Sabbath and some of you walked away and went, well, David just said, don't go to church ever. Because <laughs> I said it might be a good idea for some of you to actually enjoy Sabbath and not go to church. And um, now you might be hearing this, well, I think David just said to not listen to preachers anymore. It's not necessarily what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is this. I'm going to disappoint you sometime. The church will sometime disappoint you. Your Bible study, your core group will sometime disappoint you. That mission trip, it might disappoint you. The mentor might disappoint you. And God... I have to believe that even though we might not understand his ways and we might get frustrated with his ways, the book of Romans says that hope does not disappoint and God is the author of hope. Hope does not disappoint. He ultimately comes through. He ultimately Wherever you are, if you feel incredibly far away, or even if you feel close, God will continue to move in because that's who he is. I've been on this pet project of mine to study and to understand what it means to hear the voice of God. And several weeks ago, I had a chance to go on a retreat where somebody handed out a how to de determine whether or not you're listening to God or listening to yourself or listening to sin. And I made some copies of that, and it's on the back table. And it asks eight very pointed questions for you. If you are trying to make a decision in your life, if you are trying to, to, to learn even how to hear from God, it asks eight questions for you to wrestle with. With that, it's one of the best things that I have seen that's in a kind of a concise form. So I encourage you to pick one of those up. If we run out, we'll make more. 
send it out on something. But um, I guess all I want to say is we kind of finish up tonight and move into the Lord's Supper that God will move in to your life if you will earnestly seek him and not some substitute. And just like the people of God did so long ago, we are people that will settle for substitutes. And I pray that in my life and in yours that we won't do that. And especially as you approach finals and Christmas, time with family, time with old friends, that you might make it a point to maybe seek God for who he is for the very first time and not settle for anything less. You can come and listen to a joker like me every week, but my prayer is that you would find him, the one who loves you and came to earth for you and will keep on moving into your life. We haven't done this yet this semester, but one of the ways that I think that God moves in in very tangible ways is that he gave us tangible reminders of what he's like. He gives us um, this supper And it says in the scriptures that on the night that Jesus was betrayed while he was with his disciples, he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. The new covenant that the writer of Hebrews said, this is a better word. Jesus' blood shed for us is better. It's sufficient. This cup is a cup of the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus told his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul tells us that whenever we eat of this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until that day that we looked at in Revelation when all things will be made new and the feast that will be held there will be better even than what you just experienced at home over Thanksgiving. So much more. So as I pray, I'm going to ask our staff to come forward and form two different stations here and ask that you would come to one wherever you're closest to and take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup. We're going to ask that the worship team would be served first so that they can come up on stage and continue to lead us in worship. Book of Luke tells us that people will come from north and south and east and west and sit at a table in the kingdom of God. And just as all of us have come from a variety of places, 
have just come back from home and friends and family and come back here, so too can we come together as this table, at this table, and get a taste of what that feast will be like one day. So as I pray, I invite Daniel and Emily and Kirsten to come forward so we can serve. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, these are just loaves of bread and cups filled with the fruit of the vine. But I pray that now, in this moment, that you would set apart this bread and these cups to help us truly remember what you have done for us and that we might find you. We might taste and see that you are good. Forgive us, for we are a people that substitute things for you all the time. This season, may we seek and find you and not be afraid. And may we hear your voice and hear that we are sons and daughters of yours, loved and cherished by you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.